0: CircuitCast with your host, Mark Emery, presented by circuit.org.nz. Kia ora koutou, welcome to CircuitCast, here with news and views on art from Aotearoa and beyond this week. Well, it's critical panel time and for the first time ever you're going to hear the rustling of paper because rather than an exhibition program, we're putting our reading glasses on and looking at a few recent publications. All of them follow exhibitions in 2014. The books we're going to be looking at are Cinema and Painting, published by the Adam Art Gallery. Shannon T. Owls' I Can Press My Face Up Against the Glass, published by The Physics Room, and also from the Art Gallery, Kim Pieter's, What is a Life. And with us in the pod to discuss these and writing in general are Martin Patrick and Thomason Slay. Kia ora, Martin. Thomason.
1: Kia ora. Hi, Mark.
0: I thought we'd start a little bit by just talking about art writing in general and its role and function. It seems that we have like a slew uh, avalanche of books these days. I wonder whether this is too much or, or whether the essays become a necessary part of the exhibition practice
2: always found that when, you know, researching old exhibitions and artists' work, that even if a very small kind of seemingly sort of slightly ephemeral publications, like potentially like the Shannon Teow catalogue we're going to talk about, even though they're, they're small, they are immensely useful for the art historian in, in 20 or 30 years' time and sort of notoriously difficult to track down, unfortunately, as well, because of their often slender spines. But, yeah, I can understand your contention that there is a lot of efflorescence of art writing, but I would advocate for its importance as a historical document. Yeah, but art historians
0: yeah. are a pretty small audience. Whilst we have this kind of barrage of small art publications, we have a very, very limited number of publishing, the of publishing that are actually introduced. In contemporary art to a wider yeah readership.
2: They're, they're a small audience but they're also they're an audience that will create another audience if you know what I mean so it's like if if you add an say that's then reused or or talked about or used to kind of bring an artist that may not have been recognised in their time to a bigger public then it's you know it's kind of a chain I guess of audiences that moves along
1: okay Martin well I think it could you could also draw a line uh, that contemporary art maybe hasn't departed that far from the kind of notion of modernity that someone like Charles Baudelaire, one of the first really notable art critics of the 19th century, talked about how modernity was the fleeting and the, the contingent and the fugitive. And that in his writing, he always urged for for writing and for artists to work of their own time. And the interesting thing, as Thomas is saying, is I think what is written in, say, a catalog about, say, a Artists like Shannon Tao today will be quite different than might be written in a catalog or in retrospect five years on, 10 years on, assuming that to all intents and purposes that artists have a pretty long working life. And I'm sure that if you track the criticism on certain figures, it's just very, very different, the appraisal at one time and at another, and so I think that's a really valuable
0: thing. Interestingly, I think the first book we're going to look at actually has quite a diverse range of writing within it. That is What is a Life? The computer 's Exhibition. Beautiful show, beautiful book, I think, edited by Tina Barton. Tom, let's start with you on this.
2: I had such a great time reading this book. I absolutely loved it from start to finish. It was just a great joy to read. Firstly to say, actually, that I didn't see the exhibition that it addresses, so yeah. I guess that's important to acknowledge that um, coming to an understanding of Peter's work, thinking about uh, its actual installation in the Adamite Gallery, it was totally through the text and through all the plates and through everything from the book that I got a sense of that. Which is and interesting because
0: it's a very experiential kind of, of a work. Yeah, yes.
2: um, but the writing is as well, which is a great thing, so I got this real sense of what it had been like to be in the show. Interestingly, actually, the book is set up with this kind of tension at its core. There's a quote from Tina's essay where she says, Peter's abjures the inherent metaphor um, mediation of the word and she often talks about her work being she sort of articulates it at the limits of language mm. so she's really it's kind of like at this interesting sort of setup that she's sort of rejecting not sort of language but I guess maybe the more discursive uh, sort of context of her work but then there's a, this beautiful book of essays about it as well but the thing that I really loved about this book and I felt that was just so successful is that all the texts are really beautifully counterpointed um, with each other and they really offer a very very different different perspective and understanding of the work so as as an entirety the publication works so it's so cohesive and also I'm very drawn as a writer to, to more sort of experimental texts about art and kind of different ways of writing and different ways of kind of constructing a catalogue essay um, and all of these essays sort of yeah play a little bit which is really lovely.
0: So let's just stop on that for a second so you've got what I felt almost was quite a heartfelt opening an uh, essay from Tina Barton, Yeah, but then there's a, a work by Gregory Kahn, which is this kind of feel to me like the central poetic kind of response to the work, where it's mm. got all these kind of disjunctures going on and fragmentations, and it's very hard to orientate yourself, which very much expresses this idea around how Pieter's work sort of slides between things, which I, I found sometimes exasperating and annoying, other times really just really spoke to me about the work.
2: Yeah, at the end uh, section is a correspondence between the writer Hamish Clayton and, and the artist. And there's this great quote where Peter says, the clearing that is generated by situating two autonomous elements beside each other can burgeon into a golden field.
0: Ah, yes. So good. Such a great way of describing her
1: practice. Um, yes.
2: That piece by Gregory Kahn is really interesting. Again, yeah, it's um, almost uh, sort of arranged, again, Or the type and the sort of graphic uh, sort of arrangement of the text is very particular. Um, I have a small section from his poetry, actually, that would be inter- maybe interesting to read at this um, section. And it will give you a sense of his playing with language and his kind of inversion. So this this piece goes, I don't know what I can say about this place, only that I'm not sure it even is a place. And because I'm not sure it even is a place, I can never leave. A holding a part of air, I hear rain hitting the window and trying to sleep some more. Get as far away as I can. The soles of my shoes wear thin and the soles of my feet grow thick that trust would not find an entity or event at its center or as its origin, that that makes trust exactly what it is, that that is always already a kind of permission, that that permission is always already a kind of forgiveness.
0: You saw that show, didn't you, Mark? Yeah, yeah, it was a very
1: interesting show, and and I have to say I haven't yet read the catalogue, but I, I know that when there was a writing symposium that Tina Barton organized up at the Atom, uh that Gregory Kahn was a really energetic mm. uh, speaker and and quite um, uh, dense philosophically, the way he was speaking, but also very poetic. And uh, it was quite a memorable talk, I mm. remember. And, and I thought, oh, if he's writing for this work, that sounds like a really interesting conjunction of writer and artist. Yeah.
2: Yeah, um, The in the last correspondence section as well, I was just thinking about um, the relationship of theory to the work, uh, there's a yeah correspondence between um, the artist and Hamish Clayton, and they talk a lot about her reading of, you know, like continental theory. She's a very sort of rigorous reader of sort of postmodern, poststructural writers. And um, it was just really great to hear sort of directly from the artist about her influences. And I know I'm definitely 100% guilty of this, but often in art writing, it's kind of like the theory is sort of lumped on the work like this horrible like burden like a sort of seagull, was it a seagull around its neck? Is that what it's called? Anyway it was just so, albatross yeah yeah, that's (laughs) right. seagull yeah so and but it was so nice and refreshing here to sort of hear directly from the artist and have this very beautiful kind of intuitive um, understanding of who she was reading and why they were influential but it wasn't just like this kind of appendage (laughs)
0: like to use that as a segue through to the next book we're looking at actually Martin the Adam Art Gallery published another published book of these of the cinema and painting show from last year um, which has been edited by the exhibition curator Michelle Menzies the reason I used it as a segue was one of the things I thought was really distinctive about this book was the presence throughout of the artist's voice so the book, in large, is actually made out of written commentary where it's available by the artists that are featured in the show or where it's not available from historically. it's actually a series of interviews with artists from yeah, the sure, show. Yeah. and I thought this was a it was, it was actually rather lovely. It's a very artist- led publication
1: in that way. And one thing that I thought was really interesting is how a show becomes transformed in in a catalogue in the sense that uh, I do think the group of artists that Michelle Menzies and Daniel Morgan, the curator are working with here are very literate, very interesting figures that, I mean, just culturally and in terms of their amalgam of influences and so forth. So hearing those voices is really important. And then there are, Along with the curator's introduction, there are a couple of really strong historical contextual essays. And for example, Roger Horrocks has an introduction called Black Box and White Cube. And I learned a lot in that about the um, comparative inaccessibility, for example, of people in New uh, of New Zealanders for getting access to seminal works of underground cinema and sort of experimental Mm -hmm. film. And it it made it a lot clearer to me why a lot of that work would be really unfamiliar because, as Horrocks notes, uh, pre-DVD, pre-videotape, and even after that with censors and other logistics, I mean, it was quite an effort to transport uh, works of cinema all the way to New Zealand from international locales. I mean, aside from the interesting artists Uh, lie and so forth with the connections with New Zealand. The kind of centrepiece for the book here, and uh, for me, uh, literally about halfway through the book, is they have a piece by Hollis Frampton called A Lecture, which was a lecture artwork, in a sense, that was delivered on the opening night. I missed at the time, but I... I don't remember
0: it was in the podcast, but we were quite Mm. critical of how it was presented in the gallery elsewhere, Mm. which was just as a piece to read.
1: But I think actually reading it in the book in the midst of all this other discussion, Frampton's voice really comes yes. through as a seminal figure.
0: Let's hear a reading then. This is the Hollis uh, Frampton? Is that uh, yes, the this is of the a,
1: a segment from the um, Hollis Frampton a lecture, a kind of performance that was originally delivered in 1968 and then reenacted in the gallery uh, by Martin Rumsby on the opening night. Now we remember that film is a ribbon of physical material wound up in a role in a row of small, unmoving pictures. He makes the ribbon, meaning the filmmaker, by joining large and small beats, bits of film together. It may seem like pitiless and dull work to us, but he enjoys it, the splicing of small bits of anonymous stuff. But where is the romance of moviemaking, the exotic locations, the stars? The film artist is an absolute imperialist over his ribbon of pictures, but films are made out of footage, not out of the world at large. Again, film, we say, is supposed to be a powerful means of communication. We use it to influence the minds and hearts of men. But the artist in film simply goes on building his ribbon of pictures, which is at least something he understands a little about. The pioneer brain surgeon Harvey Cushing asked his apprentices, why had they taken up medicine? To help the sick. But don't you enjoy cutting flesh and bone? He asked them. I can't teach people who don't enjoy their work. But if films are made of footage, we must use the camera. What about the romance of the camera? And the film artist replies, a camera is a machine for making footage. It provides us with a third eye uh, uh, for acutely penetrating extension of my vision. But it is also operated with my hands, my body, and keeps them busy so that I amputate one faculty in heightening another. And I know I've quoted at length there, but I think this sort of (laughs) interesting... Iterative rumination on what the camera eye is, or what uh, Russian filmmaker Ziga Vertov would call the kino eye, the cinema eye, you know, and that that's an extension. We see that in McLuhan's writing, is about media, and we see it in a lot of the sort of ways people talk about new media today. So I think mm-hmm. it's a very prescient kind of description of the sort of act of making a film.
0: Now, this conversation around with the writing sits so with the work is really interesting in terms of this third book. I can press my face up against the glass. It's a petite black book published by the physics room of Shannon Teal's work, of three works that he made that were shown together as one exhibition uh, at the physics room last year. And interestingly, we have a, a show of Shannon Teal's Sydney Biennale works coming up uh, at City Gallery soon, two shoots that stretch far out. So it's rather timely to be looking at this. There are three writers responding to the three different works here, and I'd like to take a small passage from Tina Barton's response to a work called Untitled Macan House Studies, and it's from the beginning of the essay. I'm not sure if I can speak for the artist about this short video. All I can do is give my impressions based on viewing the piece, visiting its setting, and having a sense of the history within which any work that invokes the name Macan will inevitably be read. I'm probably putting words into the work that don't belong, But such is the challenge with which the art writer is always tasked. Call it a reading, an extrapolation, a gathering of resources to help understanding. I'll leave it there. It's a rather bold and interesting thing for a writer in a very self-conscious way to say at the beginning of an essay because I would kind of respond, well, of course that's what the writer is there to do. Thompson, I can see you... (laughs) wanting to chip in there.
2: Tina actually has in her essay in the um, Kim Peters book as well a kind of similarly undercutting or sort of questioning of her own practice and her own writing Um, and I think it's quite a trend in art writing and has kind of historical lineage as well but that sort of self-conscious awareness of uh, what it is to write about art and I think uh, Tina in that essay as well she she kind of takes this sort of experiential position and sort of uh, sort of is a bit more of a bodily experience of the work perhaps than just sort of a straight sort of analytical description uh, or or criticism of it I guess. I'm always sort of interested in that balance there's you can have um, a text that kind of questions itself and does that kind of undoing which I think is, is quite a Yeah, it's definitely a kind of a theme in art writing at the moment. I think that the key is really getting a balance between making a series of sort of definite pronouncements or making a point or having a kind of, you know, argument as well. But also, I am still interested in that. Um, I sometimes think of it kind of like a pleat almost in the text where it's like the writer's sort of subjectivity or the experiential nature of seeing um, art kind of makes a little appearance.
1: One thing that I was thinking about, generally speaking with both the cinnamon painting book and the catalog we're discussing now is thinking about what does a artist curator or writer or some amalgam of those do with history? Because in a sense, what what is their role in the sense that like in Tina's essay, she quite eloquently sets up a kind of um, interesting narrative from her point of view about the relation of Teo's work to the Colin McCann, um, Homestead and Colin McCann's work and then in some ways that's a kind of not something that couldn't be evident in the work in some ways but it's sort of refracted through her own historical connections to to New Zealand art and I think it's sort of interesting how, how do curators and writers or artists initiate kind of a resonant dialogue with the past and in between past and present and that's something going on with all of this or for example with the I agree with you that the contextual information around Shannon's work is I think incredibly important like the history of Pariahaka, for example is really important for me to know as someone who's migrated to New Zealand that I was familiar that artists have often been commissioned for example to make work related this for a show a number of years ago but I think it's almost like one of those cultural uh, landmarks in New Zealand in terms of an event that's almost beyond response. It's almost like how, how can one make work that in some ways uh, responds to the uh, something like that. So uh, a tragic event. So it's, but it's really interesting for artists to make a move toward how, how do you make some relation that's resonant with the past and, it's not a seamless business it's kind of problematic and that's what i think makes a lot of interesting friction in these works
2: i think also that was the interesting point that is it anne-marie white made in her Mm -hmm. essay which finishes the the publication where she talks about that context of parihaka but also places tiao in a kind of interesting lineage of Māori artists, and talks, I think maybe kind of positions him as a kind of next generation or kind of a next step from artists who have made work about Parihaka, kind of specifically referencing that moment and the kind of um, the trauma of that moment. But yeah, she talks about his his more kind of complexities of his um, sort of ide- his sort of cultural identity and how that is present in these works:
0: Well I mean she's talking about the fact that he grew up in Australia I think and is coming back and that these aren't his stories you know he's too funny to her, I think but he's, he's looking at these, these other stories he's coming and I think Katarina Riva, is a, a curator who was here who came into the country is also and you know there's a nice thing about being that outsider and, and sort of seeing him as being this kind of outsider but also someone who's got a, a deep interest in understanding their culture.
1: But you make some really interesting points just about uh, formally and structurally how, say, the the kind of use of the figure and uh, embodied performatively in the landscape is resonant of uh, or recalls Terrence Malick's films like Days of Heaven. And it's almost like he really makes the uh, cinematographically, he makes the environment very animate. That kind of... Uh, uh, framing as something that may not have come from someone who's just thinking about some other issues in the work you
0: know so that work that katarina reeve is looking at uh, untitled and then in brackets Rakai hotu it's it's interesting to, that i've seen that work before and i've really struggled to kind of understand the modus operandi of the performer and, and where he's going although i've enjoyed the the kind of beauty of it to understand for me that it's based on Rakai Hoto is this first Māori in the South Island. The stories of him, literally the myth of him digging up with a stick these lakes from the earth or even making the, the Southern Alps. And there is the artist out there in the mud digging away. It's sort of completely changed my impression of the work.
2: Yeah, I guess it raises the interesting question like, how much you should need to read? Like, how much does the text kind of infect? Infect is probably the wrong word, but. Um, how much does the text relate to the art? How much should it, like, you know, the cloud of language that is around art making? I'd be curious to know, like, how much you guys read before you go and see an exhibition, for example? Like, do you sort of assiduously read the wall texts? Do you take in as much context as you can? Or I,
0: I tend to try and avoid them, actually, but now after after thinking yeah. about <laughs> Shannon's work, I'm starting to wonder. Yeah.
2: But I think
1: it's a real uh, a fallacy to think that you can sort of have some kind of completely unmediated experience of an artwork. I mean, I love going into a gallery and not thinking that I have to initially read contextual information, but I also think again, it's like there is a centrality to some of the information that you might find on a wall text, or there might be things that are core conceptual components of the work that are really very important to know about. But, but I don't think that diminishes how the kind of impact of looking at a video that, that's non-narrative, that's very performative, its evocative quality you know, elicits you to find out more about what... Uh, I mean, most artists now are quite sophisticated about how to construct a work around whatever their inspiration, their research um, is. And I, I just don't think we're in an era where we can kind of pretend that we can divorce ourselves from the discourses and the multiple discourses around around art.
0: Fantastic. So that's I Can Press My Face Up Against the Glass, Shannon T. Owl, And as we were saying, you can see Shannon T. Owl's latest work, uh, which was featured at the Sydney Biennale last year, uh, coming up in June, I think through to November, at City Art Gallery Wellington. Thanks for joining us, Tom and Martin, on the podcast. Thanks. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you.